Welcome back to Sermon Notes. Uh, this is Garland. I got Michael here with me. How are you, Michael? Hello. Glad to be here. Good, good. Uh, you know, we've we've begun this Daniel series. Uh, we're off and running uh, from last week. We've already noticed just. Uh, in our intro last week, there's a lot to wade through with the book of Daniel, um, a lot of interesting features of this book, and you have the, is it enviable or unenviable? I can't decide. You know you're jealous. I am a, I am a little bit, but I'm also like, oh my gosh, this is going to be a difficult week. Um, if you notice in your book, and what it's going to lead us to this this Sunday morning, we got a lot of ground to cover, and if you're listening to this and you're a small group leader or you're doing discipleship with some people, you're probably going, what in the world do I do with here's your task this week, Michael? You've been tasked to teach Daniel 2 and 7 and 8. So uh, we're doing this on purpose. We've structured this uh, series with our intro chapter that was last week. Then we're actually working the chiasm. And if you aren't familiar with that, go listen to last last week. You'll see it uh, on Sunday. It's in the intro to each section yeah, the, of the study yeah, guide. You can if you're see using it. the study guide. Um, that's the little lines that are on the side of the study guide. Um, two and seven parallel, three and six parallel, four and five parallel, and, become the, and they form the center of this chiasm. And so we we patterned the series after that, and that, that then lands you two and seven. So... Help us get our arms around at least what's going on in these two, and then we'll wade into some nuance here in a minute. Yeah, so uh, Daniel 2 is actually probably going to be somewhat familiar to people if you've been in a Bible study that's done Daniel. It's not a chapter that you would normally skip because it is is significant. And Daniel 2, um, Daniel and his friends, we, we usually think of them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's their Babylonian names. They are placed in what I consider an impossible situation. The king, King Nebuchadnezzar, has had a dream. And he says to his wise men, um, tell me, interpret my dream, but begin by telling me what I dreamed. I think he doesn't trust them. I think he's testing them. He thinks, oh, you're so in touch with the spiritual plane that you can interpret dreams, so you should know what I dreamed. And they, of course, say no one can do that. And so he says, well, then what good are you to me? We'll just kill all the wise men. And so Daniel says, wait a minute. Um, He goes to his three buddies. They pray. It's interesting. They ask the Lord for mercy. They say, Lord, be merciful in this. And God is merciful. He reveals to Daniel not only the dream, but the interpretation of the dream. So Daniel goes to Nebuchadnezzar. And it turns out the dream, the dream is of a statue made of different metals. Each portion of the statue, which is a different metal, um, uh, is a predictor. It's a prophetic dream of kingdoms that are to come. And we're in a good position because we're looking back through world history. Um, Daniel, in his day, he's looking forward. So he's, he's prophesying about things that are going to happen. But now it's obvious to us as students of the Bible and history to see the kingdoms in succession are the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, then the Romans. And the vision of the statue ends with a stone that comes, rolls into the statue, destroys the, the statue at its feet, which are made of iron mixed with clay, and then the stone becomes a mountain that uh, takes over the whole world. And so it's obvious in Daniel's interpretation, and as we read it, the stone represents God's kingdom. God's going to come and establish a kingdom that destroys these Gentile kingdoms and rulers and takes over the world. That's Daniel 2. Then, you want to jump in? Yeah, so before we go to 7, what's interesting about chapter 2 is, you'll, if, in, in reading it, you'll notice uh, we get 23 verses dedicated to 
you know, what's going on on the court and Daniel and his friends are praying and the interpretation doesn't really even begin till verse 24 and then we get it told. When we flip over to seven, we're going to get a little bit different scenario because now all that court drama and all the other people are being in, that are interacting here, that largely fades to the background and... Instead of it being presented in the third person about Daniel and his friends, in chapter 7, when you turn over, now it's Daniel reporting an experience that he has personally, which is, we're going to see, is going to be pretty instructive for the careful reader, but launch us into 7 now. Yeah, so 7, why is it connected to 2? They're parallel in the chiasm, and as we're going to see, they cover the same ground, but from a different point of view. And so um, you might remember from, if you listened to last week, if you were here for the sermon last week, um, Garland told us chapters one through six, they're the narrative. We call those the court tales. They read a lot like Esther, like Garland was just mentioning. There's a lot of narrative action. Seven begins what we call the apocalyptic. Apocalypse means um, revealing or unveiling. And so seven through 12 doesn't have a lot of narrative action. It has a lot of prophecies and a lot of visions. Um, things are symbolic. And so, yeah, seven does feel a lot different. Um, it's also the last chapter that's written in Aramaic, which we might come back and talk about that on this podcast before we're done. Here's what happens in seven. Daniel has a vision and the vision is of the ocean. And so obviously the ocean is on the earth. This is something happening on the earth and the four winds blow from the four directions and out of the ocean come four um, animals, four beasts, he calls them. The first looks like a lion with wings. Um, we know that's Babylon. That was actually their symbol. We have carvings and figures. It was on their flags that um, a, a winged lion was the symbol of Babylon. The next one is a leopard. No, I'm sorry. The next one is a bear, sorry, a bear that is lopsided. Um, he's, he's taller on one side than the other, and he's got three bones in his mouth. And so we can look back through history and see that he represents the Medo-Persian empire. Um, they, they were lopsided. The Persian side of the empire dominated the Medes. Then the next one is the leopard. I jumped the gun on it. He's got a leopard with four sets of wings and four heads. And so uh, the Greeks were famous for the speed with which they expanded their empire, like a leopard. Um, one of the things I'm going to say on Sunday, the only thing faster than a leopard is a leopard with four sets of wings. Right. So here's a fast animal. Um, the four heads, um, when that empire crumbled, it was taken over by four generals. So it seems obvious that, that this is tracking with the statue. Then the fourth beast is not, there's no analogy to another animal. He doesn't say it looked like another animal. He just says it's terrible beast. It's frightening. It has teeth made of iron. It's a super beast. Yes. And he says everything that it doesn't devour, it stamps on. Um, and then this beast, it has 10 horns. And then an 11th horn comes up and this horn has eyes and a mouth. And so the imagery is really striking. Um, if, the, if the dream of the statue was frightening man this vision is terrifying and so we see it's it's an it's analogous um these two events are 50 years apart the first daniel 2 is in 602 bc and then daniel 7 is in 552 bc it's 50 years later um, but god's sending this same message this same prophecy and so let's stop there garland before we press into the next really critical piece in the middle of Daniel 7 and just talk about how these two relate. Yeah, so what what, what it seems like we're getting in these two sections is why they're parallel is we have a presentation of a statue with descending qualities of metal and then a 
you know, a, a stone made without hands, we're told, that smashes all the statues and it becomes a huge mountain. In Daniel 7, now we have beasts that are named for us and we're given some vivid imagery about them. And then just like in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, we're going to get uh, something supernatural. And we'll talk about that in a minute as he has this vision of the throne in heaven. It's not lost on me. If, if you're unfamiliar with this, listen to this. This is, I guess, why you're going to sermon notes. Uh, the sea, you know, Daniel's vision set in the sea. The sea is, rep, is the representation of chaos in the Old Testament. That's where chaos reigns. And out of chaos come these four, uh, you know, terrifying beasts. Now, Michael, is it significant you know, well, I guess what is the significance of the fact that uh, the two different people who have these visions have two very different worldviews? What do you make of that? Yeah, so, um, I, and as we've talked about this, I think you and I are in agreement. The first dream comes to a pagan king. And when he, when, I, I bet when, first of all, I bet when Daniel said, here's what you dreamed, his jaw dropped. Because imagine if you went to your friend and said, man, I had the craziest dream. And the guy described your dream I'll perfectly. tell you your dream. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. but uh he probably liked it when Daniel said, the head of gold is you. He was probably like, yeah, it's me. I'm the head. You're darn right, it's I'm, me. I'm yeah. the best of all these medals. Um, but I think as Nebuchadnezzar looked at the statue, he sees worldly power the way most of us in the flesh would see earthly power. Dazzling, powerful, beautiful. You know, imagine gold and silver and bronze glinting in the sun. You know, it's a beautiful thing. It's yes. something to be admired. It's not surprising that the next story in Daniel is Nebuchadnezzar building a giant golden statue of himself yeah, and saying, wonder, bow down to me. Where, yeah, where did you get that, that idea? idea. Yeah. And so we flip over to seven. I think now we see the heavenly view. God reveals to his man, his faithful man, how he sees these kingdoms and he sees them as beasts. They, they devour, they destroy, they're terrifying. And so I think there's a big application in here for us, which is we still today can get caught up in admiring earthly power and seeing it as something to be sought, seeing it as something to be obtained, harnessed, um, enjoyed. And I think for us, you know, in America, we think, well, we don't live in an empire. We don't have a king. Uh, no, but we can get pretty spun up when our guy doesn't win or our issue um, falls out of favor. And it seems like things in our government are going the other way. And I think we need to recognize in both stories, we, we kind of stopped before we got to it with the, with the beast, but that fourth beast ends up being thrown into the fire. And the statue was destroyed by the stone that wasn't cut with human hands. God will triumph. It's his kingdom. That's what we as followers of Jesus should have our sights set on, not earthly empires, um, not political gain. And I'm not saying Christians shouldn't be involved in politics. Um, don't bother emailing me. You see that in Daniel. He's in high. Yeah, exactly. He's in the high political court. Yes. And I'm sure he's exerting his influence in appropriate ways, but not to be deceived. It's the things of God that are of ultimate and eternal value, not these earthly empires. I mean, I almost said in the middle of that, preach it, preach. I mean, that'll <laughs> preach right there. I mean, as we said, as we looked at literary features, one of the things apocalyptic literature does, and Daniel certainly has much of that, is you said it well, it's trying to give a heavenly perspective on earthly things. And what you just said, I think, you know, this is going to be, and we'll come back to this here in a little bit, this will be a bit of a challenge for sitting across the living room or maybe sitting across the coffee shop table walking through this. It's a lot of material, and it sounds strange to us. Um, 
one of the things that might be an interesting discussion, especially on the heels of last week's, uh, you know, the way of the faithful presence, one of the things that might make for an interesting continuation of that discussion this week is how to, you know, asking the honest question to your, your community group or to your disciples or your kids, how do we view world powers? And uh, whether we like it or not, we, we live in one of the dominant world powers. And how do we view it? Um, how do we see it when empires extend themselves across the world and across nations? And God's perspective often on that is it's beastly. Don't, uh, don't line up with this. I'm, I'm, yeah, that's, that's good stuff right there. Yeah, and if you use the discussion guide in your book, it will point you toward that. And so um, that discussion guide is going to be helpful for you, community group leaders that might be listening. And uh, that's a great segue, Garland, for what follows in Daniel 7, because I think this is something that we want to make sure we don't miss in community group. And it's really, I think, the most important part of this whole passage. So um, if we... The scene shifts um, in verse 9 of chapter 7. And so the beast, that's happening in the vision on the earth, right? The ocean is on the earth. But then he says, as I looked, thrones were placed. And somebody called the Ancient of Days comes out. And as we continue to read, and we read the description of him and fires issued from his throne, and he's surrounded by thousands upon thousands, 10,000 times 10,000 serve him, we see this exact kind of language used about Yahweh in Psalms, in Ezekiel, in Isaiah, and in the New Testament in Revelation. The throne is mentioned 40 times in Revelation. And so this is a heavenly scene. We've shifted from the earthly scene to the heavenly scene. And then if we look down at 13 and 14, this is what we want to make sure we get to in community group. Um, There's one who comes before the Ancient of Days. It says, Behold, with the clouds of heaven... There came one like a son of man. And so when we look at the vision in Daniel 7, there's a leopard with four heads and four sets of wings. There's a sideways walking bear with bones in his mouth. There's all these crazy things, this terrible beast with iron teeth, with 10 horns, an 11th horn with eyes and a mouth. In the middle of all that, there's a man. There's one like a son of man, a person, a human figure, but he's no ordinary human because look what God gives him. Verse 14, he was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him, a dominion and an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so it's, it's obviously this man is being given the kingdom of God. So then we flip over. 500 plus years to the gospels. Mark, th- Mark begins, the gospel is at hand, or the kingdom is at hand, right? And throughout the gospels, Jesus' favorite title for himself, he uses it over 70 times, is son of man. And so I think every time Jesus says son of man, he expects the hearer, or for us, the reader, to make the connection. Daniel 7, Jesus is the Messiah. He is God's Messiah King that's been given this kingdom in this vision in Daniel 7. And now in the incarnation recorded in the gospels, Jesus is this son of man that the world's been looking for and waiting for all this time. Yeah. One of the ways I like to explain this in, and you know, in my small groups or class that I'm teaching is when we read the old Testament, it's like we're getting a pieces of a stained glass window or a mosaic. And here's a 
I mean, if there's a piece of that stained glass window, and I should say what it's concerning, the, the expectations that Jesus walks in as Israel's Messiah, the Davidic King, the branch of Israel, all the, all the things that Jesus will do and say, he is, he's basically walking and saying, you know that mosaic that is from the Old Testament, from Genesis, from the prophets, from the historical, from the Psalms, put that mosaic together and when you look and the light shines on it, what you'll see is me, but you'll see me on a cross. And I think that one of the things as we put that mosaic, you know, mentally construct that as you're listening to this, one of the big, huge pieces of that stained glass window is what we're going to look at in small group and on Sunday this morning. We can't overstate the significance to which Jesus took this expectation. Now, Daniel 7 doesn't say it's going to be Jesus on a cross. Wait for him. Here it comes. But Jesus is embodying, we might say, these expectations of the prophetic hope. And this is a huge one. If there's that we, we talk about the big ones a lot, the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the, the one who comes before the ancient of days here, the Psalm 110, the snake crusher from Genesis three, all these big concepts, but it doesn't get much more significant because as you said, this is the title Jesus starts walking around claiming he embodies and he keeps talking about a kingdom. And so um, as you were reading it, the, the last verse of Matthew came to my head, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. That's, that's, that's ripped straight out of Daniel 7. And so it's just fascinating watching how Jesus steps into that mosaic and says, it's all, all of us been pointing to me. We're Christians. We know that. Um, yeah. But I just, I'm just goosebumpy over here looking at Daniel 7. Same, same. I'm so excited to talk about it on Sunday. You know, just a few chapters before the verse you referenced in Matthew 28. In Matthew 24, Jesus is talking about things that will happen in the future in verse uh, 30. He says, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. That sounds virtually identical mm-hmm. to Daniel 7. Power, glory, um, heavenly places, and Jesus, he's clearly identifying himself as the Son of Man pictured there. And so, yeah, this is one of those places that our Old Testament and our New Testament connect so strongly. And sometimes I think Today, in the 21st century, we struggle to see how exile literature really impacts our life today or what it has to do with us or even how it undergirds our New Testament. And this is one of those places it's just crystal, crystal clear. But by the end of this series, we'll be going, this is the way, and we will all love exile literature. Uh, okay, let's, let's, let's turn and pivot just for a moment. Um, you've also got to talk about Daniel 8, supposedly, um, that was at least assigned to you. Apparently, <laughs> Ryan wants to sing some songs yeah. on Sunday. We can't go for two hours in the teaching. Right. I already took too much time last week. So let, let's can we tell him? Yeah. You're not going to talk about Daniel 8. I'm not going to talk about Daniel all. 8. The only time we'll see Daniel 8 is on that little timeline that goes down the side of the slides. So, yeah, let me hit it real quick. It's another vision. And um, I mentioned this a moment ago, Daniel 8 shifts back into Hebrew, which is interesting because now it feels like maybe the target audience is people in Israel, people who can speak and read Hebrew. But it's a vision of a ram and a goat. Um, the, the ram <laughs> has two horns, um, and it charges to, um, west, north, and south. And then along comes a goat that charges from the west. And so, again, it's, tr- it's, 
it's traversing some of the same ground. Um, I think most commentators agree. The two-horned ram is the Medes and the Persians. Just as the bear was lopsided, um, the, the uh, ram has one horn that's bigger than the other. The goat definitely seems to represent Alexander the Great. It has four horns. We know from the beasts that the, the, uh, the Greek empire broke into four pieces with four generals. Um, and then one of the four horns, um, most scholars agree, is a guy named um, Antiochus Epiphanes. He um, is a major figure in kind of intertestamental Jewish history. Um, he was brutal to the Jews. Um, so again, Daniel 8 is a significant piece of prophecy that from our vantage point has been fulfilled. But at the time that Daniel gave it, it was things that were going to happen over the next several hundred years to the nation of Israel. And it's remarkably accurate and specific. Yeah, I am smiling and giddy because this is the, uh, it's called, you call it intertestamental period. A lot of scholars call it second temple period. We're talking about the period between the destruction of the temple, 586, and the exile's beginning to uh, the coming of Jesus. And oftentimes we refer to this as the silent years, quote unquote, where we say, well, uh, we don't have a, in our Bible uh, a piece of literature coming out of this period. And uh, that's, while the while that's a, a thing we use all the time, there's a lot going on in this period, and it actually has a pretty uh, pretty large significance on the early uh, followers of Jesus, the community that Jesus is interacting with in the first century. So I'm smiling and somewhat giddy because if uh, if you want to learn more um, about this period, there's some books that are not included in our canon, but some from the Catholic tradition include them, and the books would be First and Second Maccabees. Those books will detail the events surrounding Antiochus Epiphanes IV. He was a he's a Greek general that ruled the area called Palestine in about one in the one sixties BC. This just so happens to be the circumstances that. Uh, that create the story called Hanukkah. And so um, if you uh, need to connect all these dots, uh, the the menorah that we see down on the square at Christmas time is directly related to the events that Daniel 8 is speaking about. We're not going to get any detail on them, um, but those are these are events that became very significant for Jews living under the foreign powers, Greece, Rome, Persia, and Babylon beforehand. We're learning about exile literature here. And uh, one of the things that we're going to see is how that comes to influence the New Testament when we get to 1 Peter. But uh, anyway, that's uh, it's. there's a lot in there. There's a lot we could talk about with uh, Daniel 8 and with Antiochus Epiphanes. Don't worry, listeners of Sermon Notes. We will come back to him when we get to Daniel 10 to 12 because I'm getting payback because I got that one. Daniel 10 to 12, <laughs> I get all three of those chapters and we will get all these weird visions of the kings of the north and the south and the north and the south going back and forth against each other and Antiochus will show up again. So we'll get some, maybe a, a little deeper dive on that when we get there. Um, Michael, uh, help me. If I'm going to sit across from three guys at a coffee shop or a community group in my living room, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> yeah, it's a great question. So I think as we explore these texts together, let's just lean in on the relevance for us today. So Garland, you did a great job setting the table for us last week. We as Jesus followers, are living in a culture that does not share our worldview, does not share our values. And so there are lessons for us to learn in how these exiles handled that situation. And 
One of the big takeaways, and this is what I would want to lean into. I hope to do this with my community group. I would do it with with um, anybody that I was meeting with. Would be that God is sovereign over history, and Jesus, the Son of Man, is the centerpiece of that history. Right? How do we count years? up to when Jesus was born and since Jesus was born. And we are living in the time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. And however you want to interpret these um, prophecies, different people take different views on what things mean. We all agree on one thing, Jesus is coming again. We have not seen the fullness of the kingdom yet. And so I would want to challenge those guys in your hypothetical, just as I hope to challenge my community group and myself, As I consider these things, am I living in light of the fact that Jesus has come, the kingdom has been inaugurated, and he will come again? And when he comes again, those kingdoms of the earth, those Gentile kingdoms, they're going to blow away like chaff. And so I don't want to be overly invested in them. I want to be invested in him and his kingdom. Yeah, that's a great way to say it. Uh, That goes with the purpose statement of Daniel. Um, Though empires rage and God's people get caught in the fire, uh, God is in control and working about to bring his kingdom. And boy, it's nice to see that in the face of Jesus. And we long for the day when that comes in its fullness. So what's our takeaway? To trust and obey with courage and conviction. Um, Well said, Michael. Uh, I am looking forward to this. I'm going to see if we can get any of these sermon notes on Daniel under 20 minutes. That's going to be our challenge because there's so much to cover. But uh, thanks for joining us on Sermon Notes. If you have questions, if you're going, I don't get it, just email us, text us, call us. We'll get coffee. Uh, I think you can tell. We think this is fun. Uh, And so uh, let us know, but have a great week and we'll see you Sunday.